Hello and welcome to A Decade Apart. Calvin, it's week two. Amazing. Week two, podcast two. Can't believe this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we had a really good response last week. Uh, thank you everyone for our first uh, uh, episode support and everything. Um, there's a little bit of a backstory to this. So when I posted uh, the podcast to iTunes, I didn't quite expect uh, that the... the you know, for them to approve it so quickly. And then what happened was it sort of just appeared on iTunes that evening. And <laughs> I messaged Calvin and I was like, oh my goodness me. You mate, were so surprised. <laughs> you were like, this wasn't meant to happen for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that sort of rushed the schedule a little bit. So we weren't even supposed to be recording this podcast now, were we? No. Yeah, it's very um impromptu, but we're looking forward to it. <laughs> so it's all good so we've had we had great feedback thank you everyone um what i forgot to mention at the end of the last show because we hadn't actually uh we didn't have a website we didn't have a, a platform to host our podcasts when we recorded our first show and uh, so i really couldn't promote uh, the various places you could hear our podcast so i'll start the show by highlighting that you can now catch us on itunes we have a website decadeapart.com we're on overcast pocketcast Stitcher and TuneIn. Um, or if you don't have any of those podcast players, you can simply go to decadeapart.com and you can grab the RSS feed, put that into your podcast player and you can subscribe to our content every week. So we have a system now, Calvin. This is good. We went from having nothing to having a lot within the space of three days. Waiting for like a year and a half to actually do it, to actually do it by schedule. <laughs> Exactly. We actually planned to do this a year ago, right? I yeah, thought you were, we were going like... to get like so annoyed because I think you could feel that I was like potentially stalling, even though like actually wasn't. I was just really busy. But yeah, and then eventually I was just telling you what I always tell you, which is make time, my friend. Make time. <laughs> you were just like, okay, we're gonna do it this day, this time, and I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no choice. And uh, here we are on Sundays, uh, doing it, which is great. Which is great. Um, another bit of follow up. Um, we had a lot of feedback about the show. It was great. Uh, lots of positive uh, vibes about the show. Uh, I think you took our feedback on and took it easy on us in the first week. So this week, I'm encouraging you to give us more critical feedback uh, through our website or directly on Twitter, whatever way you want to reach out to us. Um, I think one of the things people liked was the fact that uh, they preferred the topics where we fused uh, technology and politics more closely together, right? Yeah, so we're just going to try and do that this week and in the coming episodes as well. Exactly. So we're going to tighten that up. Um, the other thing, uh, we mentioned HMV in the previous podcast. Um, and I, I said uh, HMV was uh, Her Majesty's voice. I don't know why I had some sort of royal connection with HMV. <laughs> but it was actually his master's voice. Um, and his master's voice was uh, named after a painting or a piece of art by a guy called Francis Barou. I don't know if it's French or Barrowed. I don't know how to pronounce this, so maybe that's week three follow-up. But essentially, uh, this dog called Nipper was listening in on a gramophone, a cylinder sort of phonograph. Um, and uh, HMV was at the time a gramophone company. They were, they, were, they, were, they were building these gramophones and eventually went on to building, uh, sort of making records and vinyls, and then they turned into who they are today, or maybe, uh, you know, they were on the long route to demise. Mate, you've been done here. He was um, an English painter. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No way. <laughs> Born in London. 
Oh my god, that's a perfect example of just uh just okay, I have been done here. <laughs> to be fair, like it was a good it was a good guess, but I didn't see that coming either. I did leave myself a, 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 a an exit strategy. I did say I wasn't sure, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh brilliant. Uh so I start week two follow up with probably even more follow up uh next week. So oh uh, god. If you're not a historian, feel free to uh, email in and uh, absolutely burn me. Class, uh, uh, how's your week been, mate? Uh, it's been good. It's been good. Uh, so yesterday, a bit of follow-up about the weekend. Uh, yesterday, I went shopping uh, with my fiance Kasha, and then we were planning uh, to go do shopping for her. And okay. essentially what ended up happening is I came back and I bought four pairs of shoes. <laughs> you... Okay, so you got... Nike, one pair of Nike shoes. I can't remember what the other pairs were, though. Yeah, I got um, a pair of Nikes, uh, Nike Air Jordans. Uh, like, a completely left-field purchase. I never buy anything of this kind. Like, <laughs> do you, do you, from you've New never York known now? me to... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've never bought anything of this kind at all. I didn't even intend to go out and buy these shoes. But I saw them... Uh, Kasha showed them to me actually they looked really good and she said try them and the minute I put them on I was just like oh no oh no <laughs> um, so yeah uh, and then I bought a new pair of marathon shoes uh, which was amazing I went to an Adidas retail uh, factory retail shop basically and I always buy the previous season's shoes because they're always much cheaper and I found that exact uh, model of the ones I wear now but like you know a year on Please. and then I bought two pairs of Vans again shoes I never buy, but suddenly I'm I'm into them. So, yeah, I've pretty much sorted out my shoes for the next year. I only go shopping like once a year for these kinds of things. So, how yeah, much? Well done. Did you end up spending? Like, wait, I'm gonna guess. Oh, I don't want to go into that. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's let's just say let's just say I used a bit of credit to get through. It, so yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Unbelievable. Let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. So, um, okay, let's focus in on this week then. Um, we've got uh, an interesting show, I think. Um, we're going to be talking about Uber and uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, I think these are two topics that are, you know, predominantly technology topics, but increasingly we're finding that politics has a role to play uh, in them. And so uh, let's start first by talking about Uber. So, Calvin, um, how often have you used Uber? Have you used it before? Um have I? No, I don't. I, I've nearly used it. And I think it was um when they were doing. I don't know if they're still doing the deal now, but it's like your first Uber ride is completely free, and like we were going to use it when we were going out in Newcastle, but just ended up getting a train at like quarter to five, which probably okay. wasn't the best or better alternative. But no, I've never used it. Okay, okay, and so that that's actually the same situation I was in when I I used uh, Uber for the first time. Uh, I used Uber for the first time not in the UK actually. It was in Paris. So um, I went to Paris for some work, and I was going to like a one day conference. I was coming back the same day. Get to uh, you know the Paris Gare du Nord, the Eurostar station, and um, when I'm there, I pick out my phone. And I'm, I'm, I'm essentially clueless. I'm trying to figure out how to get to this particular venue. And typically, I would normally just walk to the taxi ranch and uh, get into the cab, right? Yeah, just But in, I don't know, for some bizarre reason, 
Uh, I think I'd seen an Uber ad that day uh, on 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 the train when I was doing some work, and I just thought, let's see how how easy it is to do this. Now I already had an Uber account. I just never used an Uber ride, so I was actually all set up. You know I me. Mean? I like to I like to be in these beaters and and stuff. So I actually had everything set up. I just hadn't hadn't taken a ride yet. I hadn't found a good reason to to, to find a ride. So. I opened up the app, I typed in the details, and boom, there was a ride available within five minutes. And the best thing was, it was cheaper than uh, the rate I was then subsequently quoted to the same venue. So yeah. I actually went out and asked, how much would it cost to get to this venue? And it was something like uh, 30, 30 euros, because it was it was peak time traffic, and it was a bit out of town. Um, and then Uber was something like 20 euros. So, and obviously this first ride was also free, so that massively helped, but I didn't... I didn't sort of budge that. I just thought, yeah, yeah let's course, let's course. just try it out. Let's see what it's what's going to happen. And it was great. It was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Um, uh, I mean, what do you think of the service in general? I think like what I've heard from friends is that easy to use, easy to pay, very convenient. Just it seems less hassle than trying to find a taxi, a which is free, and then yeah, it's just, it just seems to be like with the way that. The economy and just the world is moving with just quicker access to certain things and more efficiency. They just seem to like fit very nicely into that category. Yeah, and that and that's the thing. I think Uber has sort of uh, bounced to dominance because of this. They've they've really focused in on the user experience, uh, ease of use. In many ways, they took away what I found to be the biggest friction, and that was always this interaction with the taxi driver. And I don't mean that in a in a nasty way, but this is always this. You know, if you just imagine the old way of getting into a cab, right? First of all, as you've got to sort of stand on the street and wave your hand in the air like a muppet. You only ever do that in a nightclub, <laughs> uh, and then uh, you're sitting there waving your hand. Uh, and then uh, it's up to the cab driver whether they stop for you or not. Uh, and I've even been in instances where you tell the driver where they want to go, and one or two times they've said, actually, no, um, you go wait for another cab. They'll take a, like an easier job in the area because it suits their, yeah, their sure. schedule. Um, and then the second thing is you, you, you ask them how much is it going to cost before you get in, right? And you just want to get an idea. Now, if you're loaded, you probably never actually just got in and just, you know, prepared your wallet for some serious damage, depending on how long your journey was. Um, and so you get in, uh, you get into the back uh, and you sit there. There's a piece of glass between you. Uh, this is in London, by the way. But uh, so the, the carriages, the, the cabs typically have like a, a piece of glass between you. So there's this very like antagonistic, I'm the driver, you're the customer sort of relationship. And there's a little window in between where you can talk to the driver from. Right? I always found that um, like really awkward to sort of like, <laughs> it, just, it just seemed like you weren't really meant to talk to the driver. It just made for an awkward journey, especially if it's like a 20 minute yeah London. yeah exactly and even in other countries where you know they have these cabs i mean the cabs all have the same design the same color and they have a similar sort of setup and i, I guess that's because that's what worked back before uh we had this kind of uh era we have now with technology making things easier but anyway you get to the destination and meanwhile there's this constant sort of anxiety that's being caused because there's a meter at the very front of the car telling you how much this trip is costing you <laughs> And it doesn't. It doesn't start at zero. It starts at like some ridiculously high number. <laughs> it's a, it's like so, that in Durham as well. So you get to a cab after a night out, and it starts at three pounds, and you're just like, this just isn't ending well. And like exactly, the driver's talking to you. You're not even paying attention. You're just watching it go up like ten pence every few seconds. 
Yeah, especially when you're standing still. That's the worst. You're standing still, and this number is just ruining your life as you speak. And and all that's happening is you're thinking, how many other things could I be buying with this money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and the number it started with is probably all the journey actually costs the driver in terms of like insurance and everything. Everything above that is probably the rates they pay for their, their hire car and everything. So anyway, you get to your destination, you know the number and he presses the button and the number goes up even further, right? So sometimes when they finish the journey, they press the button and then it adds a surcharge on top of that. Yeah. So like you don't even have a true perspective. Anyway, you pay the money, you ask for a receipt and then the driver looks at you like... What, what do you mean a receipt? It's like, I don't know any other place where you pay for a service and getting a receipt is so hard. What's happening? Um, the re- exactly. And the receipt is like a handwritten piece of paper, which if you have to claim expenses, always looks dodgy because it's just some sort of like <laughs> illegitimate piece of paper, which when you put into your wallet or pocket gets scrunched up and then you look at it and you're like, nah, that's never going to go through expenses. So yeah. you just don't bother claiming it. <laughs> So, I mean, there's so much about the experience, which is just ridiculous. And this is how things were. And I guess people just went with it because as customers, you had no other choice, right? You had, you were sort of stuck. And then here comes Uber, who basically, and essentially what they've done is, I mean, Uber was really, really smart. You know, Uber don't claim to own any any infrastructure or any cabs, right? So yeah. um, they basically create a technology platform where drivers uh, can meet new customers and they handle that middle middle bit uh, before before technology you had to basically part, be part of a like a, a, a cab scheme or something like that because you needed some sort of centralized way of, of getting rides um, or business right and so people signed up to uh, licensed uh, cab companies and these cab companies would take on the task of finding you work essentially and then they'd send you out on jobs and you know through radio or through other means or maybe you worked in a location so out an airport you just parked up and then you just basically did the airport route all day long right um, but they're all based on on licenses um, and I think in London you have stuff called like the knowledge where you have to take a test to, to show that you know your way around London and this is all a very like a, a pre-technology sort of way of thinking because technology GPS the small things like that just didn't exist uh, and so now we are here in this world where Uber's turned up and they've basically taken that customer user experience and they've pretty much gotten rid of all of that friction I just went through. Yeah. And what we have now is, I mean, I've gotten into an Uber and the guys offered me a bottle of water and chewing gum free of charge. Chewing okay. gum? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's completely unnecessary. It's like a packet of chewing gum and he just probably wants to get a five-star review. But that's that's exactly it. The, the driver is, 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 is going out of their way to make my experience... Even though I'm riding in some sort of dodgy, like the cars I've gotten into for Uber are just always ridiculous. But the customer service, the thing I actually care about has been absolutely brilliant. I think like um, and so- that's um, the important thing with Uber and how it differs from traditional taxis that I think with a lot of other industries as well, you had the workers usually had a lot of power in, just in the way that their employment and work was carried out and that the consumer didn't really have a choice with the end product they gone, didn't really have a way to like voice their opinions. But now with the way Uber conducts their business, you just have a system where everything rides on user experience, consumer opinion. So to an extent that maintains Uber's like level of service because then it's in the driver's incentive to offer a great experience because then they get better reviews, they get more cab journeys, so on and so on. So like it just the cycle perpetuates. 
exactly. And the, the the I think I think the other thing about this is that was that's a very good example of where they figured out a model um, and they got it to work. And the thing is, this model scales amazingly well. The very fact that my first Uber ride wasn't in my home country is a testament of how successful that is. Um, and I've used it subsequently in America, in, in, in Austin, Texas, and it got banned in, 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 in Texas after a while. Uh, and uh, I've also used it in Seattle. Um, I, I pretty much... Whenever I get to any new city and I need a cab, the first thing I'll check is whether there's Uber or not. And if if there's not Uber, then I go to the next de facto service. Um, and, and, and that's where pretty much things go. Now, it's also interesting to know that Uber wasn't the first to do this. A company called Lyft was actually the first to sort of really think about this uh, sort of ride sharing scheme and, and getting, you know, drivers and customers together through a platform. But Uber has been the most, uh, probably most successful at deploying this idea globally at a much faster pace. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting. Now, this kind of success obviously comes with its issues, right? So politically, Uber's not been not not been as as favoured, right? So there's there's lots of uh, towns and, and and states around the world where they are banning Uber or trying to put up barriers to entry for Uber. So let's let's talk a bit about this and and, and talk about this. So in London, we had this um, sort of we have this constant confrontation between TFL, uh, that's called Transport for London and uh, cab companies and Uber and customers. There's almost four people involved in this. Uh, have you heard about this? Yeah, I heard. Um, was that mainly to do with um, the black cab companies or the people who drive the black cabs being very angry about the way Uber was affecting their business? I think like, yeah. it hit its height. I remember hitting its height sometime summer last year where they were nearly about to go on strike. I don't know if they did go on strike in the end, but tensions are still running today. Exactly, exactly. And the, the, the key problem goes back to what I mentioned earlier. So companies like Uber have, have, have basically uh, capitalized on, on, on this sort of mechanism uh, called aggregation theory. And if you want to know more about this, I actually encourage you to check out uh, a guy called Ben Thompson. He runs a website called Stratechery. And he's probably one of the most prolific um, commentators on technology and strategy. And he talks about a concept called aggregation theories, where companies essentially come in uh, and they use technology to aggregate uh, goods and services in a way that wasn't previously possible. So if we take Google for an example, um, before Google... Advertising used to take place in print, in magazines, in, in newspapers, in television, right? And then Google turned up with a service where you could search for something and uh, it would bring you results. And then they realized that actually at, on that results phase was one of the best places to, 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 to give you advertising. So advertising spend moved away from being on um, newspaper homepages and, and, and print-based media to being on the web on Google. And so... Basically, all that happened is that this money moved from being in one place to another. And because Google have access to uh, the much more sort of granular source of, uh, of interest, i.e. you type something in and then Google gives you the results. They know what you're looking for before they even give you the results. 
they're, they're really better place for this. And it's the same with uh, things like Airbnb. Airbnb have fundamentally made it easy for anyone to make a bed a, a bed or a bedroom available. Not hotels, not, not a house, but specifically a bed. That's the core commodity that's traded on Airbnb. Right. And they've taken the platform and they've allowed people to sort of, uh, you know, reach out and find these uh, more easily. And same with Uber. They've made finding a ride or finding transportation from A to B a commodity that's very easy to exchange. But I think, I mean, you touched on it before with Uber being like a signal that companies are trying to move more to like consumer experience and putting the consumer first. But I think an issue which Uber's going to have to face is the way they've marginalized the rights of the workers. So you've seen it with um companies like Sports Direct as well, where no rights for workers, minimum wage often not being paid. They don't have... Um, Oh, it's lost my mind. But sim- similar to how in America, where you have like dental insurance, health insurance guaranteed, like employment rights, trade unions, a block to protect the working standards which you should have during your jobs. It seems that workers used to be in the primacy, sort of in like the late seventies, eighties, and then when the trade unions got started to get demolished, it swayed back to the consumer. But you've taken away the rights from the workers, which I don't think is actually advisable for both parties going into the future because no one wins long term exactly exactly so i sort of think you 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 skipped ahead there and so there's there's two there's two things here there's the point i was making previously about uh the aggregation of goods and so fundamentally what's happening there is um no longer do distributors have exclusive access to supplies and customers uh instead what's happening is that because the customer is sort of the the first order of priority any businesses that can basically improve the user experience whether it's through technology or not ultimately wins and so you know Ultimately, this is being driven by customers. The reason Uber is popular is because they're actually doing a really good job of making the customer experience pleasurable, right? Of course. On the other hand, what you're saying is absolutely right. Now, Uber's strategy and how they do that and how they move forward is by reducing the power that, you know, your cab driver or the licensing companies behind them had. And so what Uber is doing is very is very aggressively reducing the rights of certain individuals for the benefit of the customers. And they're turning that into a business model. Now, the thing is, at the same time, is they're not breaking any laws by doing so. I mean, they get they get a lot of litigation and they get um, they get put through through courts quite often. And there are scenarios where, unfortunately, you know, Uber drivers are doing things which, you know, are heinous and they're doing things which, uh, you know, no no company should be should really ever sort of have to deal with. You know, of course, yeah. So one of the friction points here is that. Um, what Uber has essentially done is they've taken the customer experience, they've elevated the power of the customer uh, so that it, it's up front and, and center of, of not just their business, but also the way that the whole model works uh, through the app, through the rating system. Did you, did you know, Calvin, that um, when you finish a ride, you rate an Uber driver and there's a five star rating system? And drivers go out of their way to, to sort of get that five star rating from you? And uh, one of the things is that if you don't consistently get, I think it's above four and a half star rating on the Uber platform as a driver, then they can they can kick you off. What? Four and a half? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's really, really high. That's I'm not sure standard. if it's four, four and a half. 
But there are stories of, you know, drivers doing all sorts of things just to get that five-star rating. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And I don't think they can rate customers the same way because, of course, it's not, you know, the, the whole thing is customer-driven. So I haven't used Uber in a while, but I know that for a fact that, you know, all of this, all of this change is making the rights of the driver sort of decrease. And, and so, you know, even companies that want to come in and, and, and give benefits to drivers rather than, you know, uh, so heavily weighting them to the consumer can't even compete on the same platform because the way that Uber is running its model is just is just completely changing the the dynamics of this. I think um the way the government needs to try and tackle this is just to change the way it defines the parameters of employment because based off the old traditional models of how people worked, if you're working full time. It was just a standard nine to five, Monday to Friday, weekends off. You're entitled to your rights, trade union, membership, all of that. But I think now, as more and more companies begin to adopt the business model, which Uber have, I think they've found the loophole, which is legal in their own right, that if they class their workers as part-time or independent, then they're able to drastically reduce the cost they have to pay for their workers. And then that will increase their profits in the future. But I think the government, just in retaliation to that, just needs to give more rights to part-time workers. I think they need to destroy this idea that sort of being in part-time work is on a a lower level than being in full-time work, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's one of the bigger issues with the the sharing economy, sharing economy, which Uber, you know, Airbnb, uh, you know, are some of the biggest players in. It, you know, primarily they came into the market offering um, innovation, simplicity, and they basically said to people, look, if you have skills, um, we have uh, customers that want your services. Here's a platform for you guys to meet each other and take part. And so that this is actually really innovative work. It's getting rid of a lot of barriers to entry. You know, there's countless stories of people who were, you know, really struggling for income who've suddenly turned their life situation around because Uber or Airbnb has provided a really reliable source of income from them. But on the other hand, what these platforms have actually done under the sort of you know disguise of innovation and progress is they're stripping away sort of uh, worker protections you know equally these things when when they fall apart these companies have no liability to the people providing services the services are on these platforms on their own accord taking their own risks and so you know and they're also because they're so new and modern they're getting around government regulations and so you know at its core it's basically shifting risk from companies to workers and the sort of societal impact of this is going to be absolutely massive. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you could already argue that backlash against this type of economy is seen in Brexit and then in the United States with the changing dynamic of the employment market and just certain types of jobs being becoming obsolete. And I think this will just get worse as like we go into the future and this this i think links really well to um our next topic when we start to talk about artificial intelligence just in general exactly exactly i mean just just before we move on i think fundamentally what uber airbnb are highlighting is that this is this is just capitalism in its most naked form right this is this is pure bare bones capitalism well i think it's capitalism in its freest form where Usually you'd have the government acting as the regulator and then it would just let market forces dictate 
price, supply, and all of the other variables. But I think the government, they've for some reason just taken a back seat and they're not reacting or even foreseeing the issue years in advance. So they're having to quickly scrounge around and try to make a policy to try and mitigate the damage. But the damage is already so great that you can't, any policy won't really have that much of an effect. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're we're also running into the problem now where people are being left behind. You know, if you fast forward five years and assume that, you know, you, you know, taxi companies don't exist because you're the likes of Uber, Lyft, uh, you know, Ride, Ride, name the city, um, all of those companies, when those people become unemployed, when those people can no longer, you know, sustain their families, there'll be a backlash and that backlash will be painful. And it won't just be, with, uh, you know, with Uber and the likes of things, you know, what Uber is essentially doing is figuring out transportation, right? And it's transportation uh, of goods and people uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, how how would you deal with that sort of idea of arguably a generation just being lost and not even at an early stage of their lives, like at a critical stage, sort of in their like, mid 40s to late 50s where the jobs that they've had for years are just being now taken by automated services and don't have the opportunity to retrain for any other jobs yeah yeah exactly exactly and i think i think it goes back to a really funny 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 consequence of uber and this links nicely onto our next topic whilst everyone is busy worrying about the the rights of workers the rights of the drivers and making sure everyone has an equitable outcome Uber's innovation, Uber's core goal in the future is to have no driver in the car. <laughs> They're not going to have drivers in the car. So whilst, 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 whilst everyone is busy focusing on the rights of whether it's the customer or the driver, you know, Uber's rolling out driverless cars. And in a driverless uh, future, this, this discussion will be completely different. You know, if you, if you take away the driver from this equation, suddenly what Uber's doing is absolutely brilliant. The only thing you have to then regulate against is insurance exactly. because you, you've ultimately removed every every risk, every liability in that transaction when you control not just how the car gets from A to B or goods get from A to B, but you can also offer the customer a whole range of different sort of customer sort of levels of experience, whether if you want to get from A to B quickly, well, here's an Uber helicopter. If you want to get from A to A to B, you know, normal pace, well, here's an Uber X. Now, if you want a more luxurious car, have a, you know, have a Uber SUV, you know, they've got all these services. And if you just remove the driver from that relationship, suddenly everything they're doing is just, um, you know, it's wonderful and it's really innovative. But the journey between now and then is going to have a lot of casualties. Exactly. Um, and I think the, they need to, you know, the governments need to switch on and start thinking about uh, autonomy and artificial uh, intelligence uh, rather than just focusing on the here and now issue. And I think it speaks to your point about um, you were talking about how um, governments are really good at legislating against the here and now and not the future. But we'll come on to this in the next topic, which is autonomous cars and artificial intelligence. Um Right. This is a very interesting sort of area. And I don't the thing with artificial intelligence is that we don't we don't really have that sort of um, we don't have that that yet. There's lots of platforms that claim to have artificial intelligence ingrained in them, but there are there are different levels of artificial intelligence. And when you look at autonomous cars, I think this is a very good example. 
You have cars that can park themselves, that can come out of a parking spot and find you, that can, you know, do things like change lanes for you. But ultimately, they're not fully capable of just driving themselves from A to B, regardless of whatever obstacle right. that's on the road. And I think uh, there's five levels of autonomy. And I think the current the current sort of innovation is at level three, where the driver still has to do um, maybe 30% of the, you know, key tasks you'd, you'd consider as part of driving. And the other things like, you know, changing lanes, uh, keeping speed with the car in front of you, parking, coming out of a car park, finding a parking spot, those have all been automated. And now sure. we are on to the really, really hard stuff where you can just set a car on a, on a road that it's never seen before and it would just drive it like 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 a human being would. It's mad. Let's talk I a think, bit about... Um, do you remember iRobot? Yeah. Because they sort of predicted this. I think they said <laughs> their vision for the world in 2020, I think it was like you had highways on top of highways in the sky and then you had... I think because the speed limit on those highways was like 200 miles an hour, which is ridiculous in itself. But it was like there was, for most of the road, road network, cars were just automated. Humans still had the um, ability to like take control. And that happens when Will Smith nearly gets killed by like 100 robots. I don't know how he survives, <laughs> to be honest. But it's just cla- classic Hollywood, like hero defies the odds. But yeah, it's well, mad. because he has a robotic arm, isn't it? Yeah, but it's mad how like, ideas of automation aren't really a new thing like they've been they've been around in discussions for like for quite a while but now we're actually starting to see them being realized in reality yeah i i completely agree and i think it's funny because that those are all works of fiction right and they're works of fiction based on on thinking and as always you know if you go back to the very first you know star trek where they had you know stuff that looked like an ipad and it's pretty much what we have today like a very thin piece of paper and you look at it and he's like that's an ipad yeah. um and you go back and you look at them and they had holographic you know you know glasses and stuff oh that's a google glass um and it's always difficult to know whether this is, you know, science fiction driving innovation or innovation coming around purely by coincidence uh, in parallel to some of this sort of fictional work. But you're absolutely right. The, you know, th- those films really did think hard about the philosophical challenges the society would have. And they made a bunch of assumptions, some of which they could foresee, some of which they can't. But, you know, you know, autonomous vehicles are a good one. Like, yes, if you have a completely autonomous world where you can't drive your own car, then just think about the safety implications. And then if you go forward a little bit more, things like speed limits start to become abstract concept because essentially... If everything is driving itself and the computer system that's doing it is really tight and it's centrally controlled, then why can't cars go at 200 miles per hour? You exactly. know, because essentially, you know, you know, you know, all the variables and all the outputs in, in, in the equation. And as long as you have enough computing power in the cloud or wherever you want to put it, then there's no limit to how much you can start to change the rules, how road works. You know, at the moment, we're still limited by quite a few things. Uh, I think autonomous vehicles are limited largely because they're going to have to exist in a world where most cars aren't autonomous. And actually, if you just accelerate to a future where it's all autonomy, then some of those challenges you have actually change. Things like insurance uh, become much simpler. So it's almost like we just need a a switch in society where we decide from this day on, everything is autonomous. And uh, (laughs) the legislation and rules and everything were just much simpler. <clears throat> but the complexity is actually being caused by the transition between where we are now and where we where we're trying to get to. Yeah, um, because um, 
the insurance <laughs> implications for having driverless, but then self-hand driver cars at the same time. It is very complex, and just the way that you'd have to deal with those insurance claims and then somehow make sure they don't con contradict other insurance claims happening at the same time between normal cars as well. This is quite an interesting exactly. dynamic. Exactly. And the the key thing here is um, it's actually really difficult to to draw that line and to sort of decide, okay, this is how we're going to... Um, this is how we're gonna uh, run things because, you know, ultimately, ultimately, people, people's lives are at stake. That this is all come boils down to safety. Whether it's drones uh, autonomously flying deliveries everywhere and dropping them out of the sky, it, the legislation here is mostly to do with the safety of people, both in terms of you know, you know, physical safety, but also financial security, job security. There's a whole range of of of, of different aspects here that sort of very very fuzzy and um i think that the point you made to me before we started this call about governments is really really valid so do you want to just want to summarize yeah what you said to me? well i think just from the way i've seen and just the way the system especially in the uk is set up governments just have no real incentive to deal with important issues which are going to affect societies sort of 10 or 20 years in advance it seems to be a case of they react to the problems of the present and then maybe an issue which would arise in like the next year or two years. But apart from that, anything which won't get them or help them get re-elected or maintain their power becomes obsolete. I think that's just quite a short, short-sighted system to be based upon because we're getting to a situation now where we need to start dealing with these long-term issues right now because otherwise we'll get to a stage where any solution that we do when the problem is serious won't have any effect at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think I think it's really interesting. So I've got a document in front of me. Um, it's essentially uh, by the government. It's from the Centre of Connected and Autonomous Vehicles. I didn't even know that government department existed. <laughs> um, and I'll add it to the show notes. Anyway, they've produced a, a document called Pathway to Driverless Cars, a consultation on, on proposals to support advanced driver assistance systems and autonomous vehicles. And this is essentially the government response. So what happens is that the government asks people for you know input and uh, people send an input and different sort of think pieces. And then the government looks at all of it and then they, they, event, they essentially sort of deliberate and they say, okay, this is what we think next steps are. And it's very interesting in two folds. Now, for the first, first I'm just looking at the responses received here. They received uh, 428 responses. Uh, 338 were from individuals, 90 from organisations, and four were false responses. So basically, uh, they're just going to you know consider them fake news or fake yeah. fake facts, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> um, and of those organisations, the top top number was from insurance bodies, 16. Uh, law firms had 14 responses. Road safety groups, seven responses. Uh, transports groups, seven responses. I have to go all the way down to, I think, the very last category, service firms, to look at anything that represents any sort of organizations where the prime thing they do is run by vehicles. So if you think delivery companies, people like Royal Mail, Amazon, all those companies, they don't seem to have fed into into this this proposal in 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 traditional in its traditional sense if yeah. you go by the categories here. And it's it's a really interesting dynamic. And 
yes, I think insurance bodies are probably going to be the biggest ones disrupted by this industry and subsequently law firms. So insurance and law are almost, uh, you know, the same thing in this particular context. I think, um, yeah, so you have services firms, cycling groups, motorcycling groups, unions, technology firms tied for the lowest number of respondents and they're all equal to. Exactly. Which is very... Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You'd think that they'd, you'd have more responses, but like, I guess that just signifies the lack of foresight. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's an annex at the end, which is a list of uh, responding organizations. It's really cool to look look at them. I think it's on page 17. So if you just quickly scroll through like some of these companies I've never I've never heard of, but the insurance ones obviously are quite straightforward. Um, but you've also got car companies in there, uh, you know, organizations like U-Switch here in the UK, Zurich Insurance. These, some of these are global insurance companies, obviously, who are feeding in in, 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 in many different industries. Um, and... <laughs> I think the document highlights uh, a world which 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 is a world and a government which is focusing on the wrong issue once again, and that is you know much like in the Uber discussion, uh, the policy was all around uh, keeping driver rights, but actually in the long term. The end game is to get rid of the drivers, and so we're sort of arguing a futile point because in in five seven years time, when everything's autonomous, there just won't be a driver in that seat to even uh, have any policy right. to, to care for. And in this instance, um, they come out with uh, essentially three options, right? So option one is do nothing. Uh, <laughs> just basically, sit on, <laughs> sit, stay as we are, uh, carry on. A classic um, characterization of government: do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> option two is uh, do nothing. Uh, which uh, sorry, option two is provide minimum legislative changes required to enable the market to develop appropriate AV insurance products. So, option option one is do nothing. Option two is let the industry decide itself, and let's let's provide the basic playing ground, and then let them let them figure everything else out. Is that sort of like just saying legislate when it becomes an absolute must that it needs to be legislated? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Basically, don't get in the way of uh, the industry when it comes to deciding what, what should happen. So let let the insurance companies, let the law firms, let the car companies come up with products. And uh, through capitalism, you know, the best products will succeed and only intervene when those things, uh, you know, okay. look ridiculous, basically. And then option three, basically, in, it basically means creating a policy now where you basically start to introduce a first-party liability model where victims would claim directly from insurance of the insured vehicle they are traveling in, regardless of reliability. So the way that's different to what happens today is if, if I have an accident and it wasn't my fault, I claim against uh, the insurance of the person who whose fault it was. What this is saying is if today, if I have an accident in my car and it's autonomous, regardless of who's at fault, I claim uh, from my insurance insurance company every time so when you claim from the insurance company for option three would the insurance company then claim from the company who makes the car and then the automated service no, no. so the the, the 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 claim stops there as it were so this would be a massive change in terms of uh, how insurance works and how liability works ultimately um you know the, you know it's completely changing the insurance industry i think you know the way premiums are done will completely change all you're basically paying for is insurance insurance of yourself really and the safety of yourself yeah and you could have scenarios where people have different levels of insurance and therefore that you know they can't can't 
can't be as well looked after, even though the incident wasn't wasn't their fault. But I think I'm removing the elements of responsibility with those types of insurance claims. It just seems quite hard because artificial intelligence isn't at the point to where you would put it on the same level as like the human capability to rationalise and think and act and actually be responsible for their actions. So I just don't see why you wouldn't be able to claim against the company who's responsible for that car's automation. Well, this this is all this is all just uh, proposals at this stage, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And 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 it's you know the long term impacts of this we don't we don't know yet. But I think the point you make about you know this even this document, for example, it's going to happen now, and then in the future, what's going to happen? Yeah, a different government can come in and completely change this, and it could keep happening every four years, and you just end up. Um, never ever get into the place where you actually have any policy for this thing. And if you think about the impact, uh, if you think about uh, politics globally, the typical term in office is about four, four to five years, right? Yeah, four, five years in the UK. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and uh, four in America. Okay, um, and elsewhere in the world, it's almost uh, at that sort of cadence, you know, four, five years, maybe six years in a dictatorship's well, you know, that's <laughs> <Eternal. But> to- <laughs> Have you heard, there's a hilarious story that um, Robert Mugabe is apparently going to try and like contest for the election even when he's dead. Ah, oh, dear me. <laughs> dear <laughs> me. I know, what a concept. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but going back, you know, we laugh, but dictatorships are probably the best place, uh, you know, or like setups for dealing with this kind of policy. Because unlike unlike tech companies who have CEOs who who do who do oversee, you know, 10, 15 year periods like governments just don't have that same same setup. And so let's say driverless cars are going to be in the UK, in America, big time in the next 10 years. That's potentially two whole governments that could radically have different perspectives on the whole technology. And so how, how do they self-organize in a way to, to legislate appropriately? Exactly. You can't. It's just, it's impossible. I think best example, you look at China, where they've been able to have a centralized form of government. Like, just look what they've been able to achieve in terms of growth and production. I mean, sure, you still have gross issues concerning human rights and their child one policy as well. But just looking at the way in which their production economy has grown and because they've stuck to a central plan which has been put in place for almost a couple of decades now, there's just, there hasn't been an opportunity for the plan or the process to stop. So you're actually seeing like the full benefits and rewards being reaped. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously that has nasty side effects. If you, you look at the way uh, China sort of goes around doing its business uh, within its own country, when they want to build a rail, railway line, anything in its path just basically gets decimated. Destroyed. But, you know, in the, space of a, in the space of a year, they do what it takes to do three years here, which is just to get the decision to, to have a, st- a rail line. And they haven't even started digging the ground yet. Like, it can take years. So... You know, obviously, not condoning the model there, but it just speaks to this point about long-term sort of challenges and issues. And these these issues do need a long-term perspective. Um, And I think, just to go one step further, I I, I almost think the government is missing the point here. Um, So, you know, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence, you have these things sort of very, very quickly uh, replacing much much of how we do 
you know business in the world of today um you know we're heavily globalized information is is almost a commodity that's very easily traded around the world and if we take autonomous cars as an example you have you have two two routes in which you can legislate this you can legislate the industry so the companies that are involved the players and the platforms on which they work on right or you can legislate the technology i.e. all of this is being done through artificial intelligence and so i sort of think the government is missing a point here this document predominantly looks at insurance issues legislation issues um and so on and so forth not once does any sort of organization here really seriously talk about the fact that the artificial intelligence that's driving this technology also needs legislation yeah and to sort of highlight my point a bit further let, let me just give you uh, an example so um i'm driving in my autonomous car i have no steering wheel and uh, this is a common problem discussed in tech so this is this isn't original but uh, driving in a driverless car down the street and my car detects a hazard coming up okay now it has three options it can swerve to the left and kill a child it can carry on and run over a lady who's pushing a pram which also has a child in it or it can swerve to the right and hit a bus stop with five people um, standing there. You don't know anything about those five people. You know there are five people standing there. Now, how how does the artificial intelligence system uh, choose what to do in that case? And who is legislating the decision-making behind that? Because a fourth option that's not apparent in that situation is that I could, for example, do an action that limits... Uh, the safety of others or I could do an action that maximizes the safety of the driver so am I going to focus on the person who owns me the autonomous car i.e the driver or am I going to focus on the impact I'm going to have on on the external world and put the driver's needs last and that that that's not being legislated against on I mean did you get that yeah I get that I think um that would be an issue because if you had an entire road network where there were automated cars Ain't it could only work if every automated service had the mindset of your primacy is to protect the driver. And if every other car has that, it should work out in a system. But if you have it to where you have civilians in the mix as well, it does. You do get to the point where the automated car just won't have a concern for discriminating between, say, a child or an old lady and a child and then six other people. So I think, again, it goes back to my point where I think you have to legislate against the companies which are responsible for the automation. I don't think you can discount them from the discussion as well. Exactly. But but if you if you th- look at the companies that are responsible for the automation in our today's world, that's, you know, your Vauxhalls, your, you know, Audis, your BMWs, whoever's making a car, they're the ones who are responsible for this software. And um in the end, I think what you're saying is, if you live in a, if you if you create an isolated uh, sort of uh, environment where a driverless car only drives on a driverless road and there's no people around, then you're absolutely right. The model works. The problem is, is in today's world, we've sort of not ever had to deal with this issue because when an accident happened, we just take it as an acceptable loss. Um, and even though you know safety would come down and so on and so forth, as soon as you put software in the seat of the driver, suddenly you start asking questions that you never had to ask before 
but they were happening anyway. So in today's world, when when accidents happen, you could probably find statistics for what drivers are most likely to do in the same scenario just by looking at examples in the world where that's happened. And I think what tends what, what will tend to happen is the driver just does what they can on instinct. You know, you just have a reaction and you base your decision making. You don't get taught in your driving test how to you know how to make a decision and you know in an accident you just basically get taught how to avoid accidents how to drive safely so it's almost a preventative um sort of measure but when you're coding uh, autonomous vehicle software you have to you have to sort of put something a provision in for that um or you could just let it be random in which case that's still sort of malicious because ultimately someone is responsible for for making 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 that you know making right. that technology work in a way that's equitable. So I sort of think the government's missing the point here, and it's very symptomatic of tech. They're legislating against you know the surface issue rather than actually drilling down deep into the core issue, which is if everyone's building autonomous cars, how are those autonomous cars behaving in an autonomous way and who's legislating for that it's a bit like um you know facebook how do they decide what goes on your news feed they have an algorithm now who who legislates that algorithm no one at the moment no but knows. in the future where that stuff is really important maybe maybe you do need to have someone legislating on how those algorithms are built yeah man big topic yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we could we could talk for hours on this. <laughs> we literally. I, I found I found I, I found this I found this uh, paper by the government really interesting, and yeah, I thought it linked nicely to to Uber. You know, who who will eventually become autonomous, uh, and there's just no legislation there on on how how it's going to work. If anything, it's going to be simpler for the companies that own the autonomous cars, but much harder when it comes to legislating what happens when things go wrong. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I think the world will be a safer place with autonomous cars. I just think you're, people are going to let tech companies run away with this sort of um, world where, you know, there's nothing's regulated and because, you know, gov governments haven't got their stuff in, in order, they, they've not been able to, you know, find a, a, an equitable solution quickly enough and in the meantime people will lose out exactly right should we um wrap it up yeah let's wrap it up um okay so uh, thanks again for listening uh, this week um like i said at the beginning you can find us on a range of platforms what we'd really really love though is if you listen to us and you left a review uh, on the platform that you're using so if you're listening on itunes please please uh, head to the app and uh, podcast app or whichever app you use and leave a review leave a comment uh, in there as well and just let us know how you think the show is doing uh, as i said before you can find us on itunes overcast pocketcast stitches uh, tune in and we've also got an rss feed on on decadeapart.com which is where you can find uh, uh, all the show notes for this show the show notes for the show will be uh, at the following url decadeapart.com forward slash two uh, the de uh, show notes from the previous one was decadeapart.com forward slash one and um, I think that's it uh, that's pretty much it Calvin uh, we'll tune in in a couple of weeks time we'll probably be talking about something radically different exactly uh, but until <laughs> then uh, take uh, take it easy Take it easy, mate. Good speaking.